The Water Values Podcast, Session 62. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Hope everyone had a fantastic Memorial Day week here in the United States and that you spent some time reflecting on the importance of the holiday. We've got a great interview for you today on an important but often overlooked aspect of wastewater utilities. But before we get to the interview, please do me a favor and complete the listener survey online at thewatervalues.com. It's short and won't take but a minute or two of your time. There's only 10 questions. As I indicated last time, I've already started seeking out some of the guests and the topics you suggested as a result of that survey, and I hope to get to a number of those topics and guests during the summer. Well, now on to the show. Today, Paul Kramer of Gresham, Oregon joins us. He's a listener-recommended guest, and he's an expert on fats, oil, and grease, or fog programs for wastewater utilities. This is something that most folks don't really think a lot about or appreciate, but it nevertheless is a very important aspect of running a sewer utility. I think you'll really enjoy it and hopefully learn a few things from the interview with Paul. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. All right, Paul Kramer, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Could you do me a favor and tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Okay, so um, I started down in Southern California for the city of Oxnard. Um, I started as a, an actual clerk there. It was interesting. Um, and as I was going through all the paperwork while I was there, I realized it was kind of an interesting field. And an inspector position opened up, and I applied and got it. And I was there for about five, six years. And then um, I decided to kind of explore the world. And so I was looking for a job outside of outside of California. I started spreading out, and I saw there was a job in Gresham. And I said, where the heck's Gresham, Oregon? And uh, I applied and flew out here and I got the job. So, and then I've been here for an additional seven years. So now I've been doing it for, actually, I think I'm missing a year or two in there. But so I've been doing it almost about 15 years now. Part that interested me the most was the, the, the number of people I was talking to, the, the number of industries in which I covered. It was kind of cool. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what exactly you're doing there. Oh, okay. So, I've, yes, for the city of Gresham, I worked, they initially hired me to create a fog program, um, <clears throat> which is a fat oils and grease program of control for their restaurant businesses. Uh, they had seen that they were having increased maintenance issues in a lot of their sewer lines because of grease buildup. And, you know, one of the main ways of mitigating that is to create a program so to make sure these businesses are cleaning their, their grease interceptors um, and to actually track them. And when I got here, uh, nothing had been done at all. Uh, you know, obviously, because that's what they need the program for. So I uh, just kind of started at the base of it and has worked up to a full running program, successful program that I have today. Okay, so um, other- uh, no, I was just going to say, um, you know, you mentioned fog is fat oils and greases. And if we step back from just, you know, they were having a, you know, Gresham was having a, a fog problem, and that's kind of the was the genesis to your coming up there all utilities have have fog issues right so uh, oh, yeah. yeah so so could you just give us a little background on what exactly fog is how how it gets into the system and and you know why it's important for 
wastewater utilities to be cognizant of, of fog issues? Oh, sure. Um, okay, so bath soils in Greece, or fog, <clears throat> is has always been a problem. Uh, that's actually one of the main reasons why there are sewer backups. Uh, the, only, the only other couple things, usually it's it's roots and, um, and like, you know, just kind of pipe, pipe issues. But yeah, the main thing is, is grease. So you get, you have grease coming from residential areas, uh, high density residential, like multicultural or multi, not multicultural, but multifamily um, areas where you've got pretty much like apartment complexes or, or row houses. Um, uh, so you've got residential, uh, high density living, um, and then you've got your, your businesses, which are restaurants, uh, coffee shops, any sort of food service establishment, anything that has to do with anything with food. A lot of people think, well, that, that all goes out the door with the person. Um, but actually, uh, it, it, it comes after the cleanup. So a lot of this material goes down the drain from cleanup. Now, you know, you think at home, um, well, that's not much. You know, I maybe make a couple meals at home and I take some lunch to work. Uh, but at a restaurant, see, a restaurant will be making uh, hundreds and hundreds of meals a day. So that's hundreds and hundreds of plates that they're cleaning or hundreds and hundreds of cooking utensils and things like that. And even if it's a small percentage uh, of the, you know, of grease on the plates, that adds up. You know, it's, it's like it's by sheer volume, you know, over time. And so this material actually gets into the sewer. It, you, know, it, you know, you add soaps to it and it, uh, it emulsifies it really nice. And it gets into the line and um, actually the soap doesn't emulsify grease permanently. It eventually separates out and starts to adhere to the pipes. And so once it adheres to the pipes, it actually creates a great uh, adhesion point for more. And so you end up essentially occluding the pipe and creating a blockage. It's, you know, it's, it's always, it's often compared to um, the same thing that happens in your arteries. <laughs> the, the grease itself, it does, it collects the same way in pipes as it does uh, in your own body, in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your arteries. And that actually ultimately blocks it. So it can kind of cause a municipal sewer system heart attack. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because when I was when I was a young attorney, I was doing a sewer rate case, and one of the issues, uh, you know, that was described as the state of the collection system, and and he, the the owner of the utility, you know, used that exact analogy, saying, "Hey, you know, look, we've kind of got uh, arteriosclerosis or something like that going on in our col- yeah. in our collection system." Um, but in any event, so so it can it can uh, impact blockages. Uh, what are some of the other impacts on a wastewater collection system that that fats, oils, and greases have? Okay, so you know you've you've got this material adhering to the pipes, and uh, as it as it kind of goes as it kind of breaks down, it can become acidic as well and create hydrogen sulfide gas, and that actually can eat away at the pipes over time as well. Um, uh, the other impacts are, you know, to avoid these blockages because there are regulations that require us to essentially protect the public and health and ensure the, the investment in the infrastructure of the taxpayers. Uh, we have to have increased maintenance. And so, so you have like a, a troubled area sort of line that uh, we have to clean every three to five months. Well, the normal service cycle for a sewer line should only be every three to five years. And so if you think about it, that's a, that's a great expense to the public. Um, you know, and great expense to the city as well. And to sort of mitigate that, they you, you create fog programs to actually help control this. Okay. And so what, what about things like, um, you know, combined sewer overflows or, or sanitary sewer overflows, things like that? Yeah, so that's, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, I, kind of, I kind of assume that it, it happens when you have a blockage, you have yeah. a sanitary sewer overflow. And uh, 
that essentially, you know, put the city in violation. You know, we have to notify local local authorities, the state, and then the, the EPA, and there's a process where we have to file paperwork. Um, and, you know, essentially, everybody's supposed to have zero, you know, sanitary sewer overflows. So you've got your sanitary sewer overflows and combined sewer overflows. Those are kind of two different things because your sanitary sewer is a separate wastewater system from your storm drains. So you, you have, that goes that goes straight to the plant and nothing else uh, goes with it. A combined sewer or combined sewer overflow would be what you have as a combined sewer where both your stormwater and wastewater both flow to a wastewater plant. And then if it, you know, in a rain event, there's a spillover. And so you have essentially uh, that just going straight to the river. So if you have a combined sewer overflow, that's, and I guess they just have that as, as different terminology. So you know what system we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, I would. You, well, there's a lot of talk, um, especially in in cities that have older infrastructure with you know typically combined sewers. Um, so, the the fog program can really help. It's not going to eliminate CSOs, but it can. Re- I I would suspect that it can really help uh, minimize at least the, if not the occurrences, at least the, the impact of those CSOs is the amount of water getting out of there. If you, if, you can, if you can make sure that the collection system is as free from fog deposits as possible, that will allow more capacity to get to the actual treatment plant. Am I, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I mean, that, that works. You're, you're, uh... And, and actually, having a fog program and controlling, uh, you know, grease at the source, because it's always easier to remove a pollutant or uh, a material uh, before it enters the waste stream. So there's that there's that whole pretreatment technology sort of thing. If you can keep it out of the waste stream, you won't have to treat for it. Um, but actually, a fog program. Uh, there there are there are plenty of cities that have had, you know, where they just kept having uh, CSOs or SSOs, and they created a fog program and made sure that all the the sort of like the, the pollutant generators, all the people who are creating the fog waste stream um, were taking care of their waste stream, they actually saw a complete reduction or an elimination of CSOs. Oh, wow. There's, so, yeah, so it, it depends. Um, a lot of the times uh, a city just needs to have a, a program in place, like a fog program, to help control that and make sure it's actually getting treated for at the sources as opposed to, you know, people not being educated and understanding what's going on. Okay, so let's let's talk a little about fog programs and, and developing one. Um, so so if I'm a if I'm a wastewater system or a municipality and I want to develop a fog program, how am I going to go about doing that? Oh wow! Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, when 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 Gresham first hired me, it was interesting because I spent like the first three to four months just learning who I would be overlapping with. Because when you, when you, uh, I, I find it's, it's best to um, over-educate everybody and then figure out who you need to talk to, you know, and find your core. Um, and when you can overlap with uh, departments such as your planning department that does plan review, uh, that's one of the things I do at Gresham, I do plan review. Um, you overlap with your plumbing department, obviously. Uh, you overlap with your wastewater engineering group. You overlap with, um, Possibly code enforcement because if you're doing code enforcement, um, and then you know you've got to make sure you talk to your uh, economic development group because they're the ones that do like the community outreach and and help businesses come through your small business programs, um, uh, you know, and it, it can it can kind of like you know uh, 
sort of fan out from there even more so. Um, and then, and then of course, within the city, the people, everybody within the city you contact, um, the more people you sort of make aware of the issue, the more stuff gets referred back to you as well. So I, I have a, I sort of have like a, a, a gunshot approach, a shotgun approach to the whole thing because <laughs> I, I find it's a lot better because the more people that know, they, they start saying, oh, that's right, that's that, you know, that Paul guy needs to hear about this. So, um, and, and it's different for every city. So, you know, some departments uh, are integrated and so you end up just talking to one or two, but um, so for developing the thought program, the first stage I found was essentially um, making everybody I'd be overlapping with familiar with me. And then the next stage was kind of uh, doing a sort of a head count in the city of how many businesses we have that could create this, create this impact, food service establishments. So anybody that has anything to do from either like a full service sit down restaurant to a coffee shop. I mean, most people don't realize that coffee shops actually are, are pretty big generators. Um, and then, and then, you know, after that, after you figure out your, your sort of, I always like to call them customers and not, not, uh, people I need to enforce on or citizens. I like, I prefer to call everybody a customer because I'm, I'm working with them. Um, so you figure out who all your customers are. And then, uh, depending on the, the number of people you have, you can either do personal visits. I find face-to-face -face visits, at least the first couple of times, um, are, is really good because people, people really re are very receptive to someone taking the time to talk to them face-to-face um, -face first term. And it makes a bigger impression, and then it becomes like a, a concern for them because then you can explain all the issues to them, um, you know, instead of sending out letters. I know some some cities in the past have did that where they just pretty much sent out, sent out a blank mailer to everybody, and they didn't get much of a response. And so that FaceTime, I feel, is really important. Um, and then <clears throat> after you visited them, so you make them aware of the issue. Uh, you, you make them aware of the requirements that, that this is a point of concern, and that you know they may need to install a grease removal device and things like that, and then you move forward with those who have them. Um, you start asking for service reports on those because a lot of times I would go to these places and I would say, uh, you know, do you have a grease removal device or a grease interceptor or a grease trap? Um, and they would say, oh, what's that? You know, and I'd say, let's go to your kitchen and check it out. And I go that right there, and they go, oh, that, oh yeah, that just overflows every once in a while. We call the we call the plumber and he he cleans it out and you know once or twice a year. <laughs> you know. Like, the, 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 the sort of awareness level was was not there, and so um, you know a lot of times just making them aware of what it is. Like, oh, that's a that's a you know a hydromechanical grease interceptor or a grease trap uh, that needs to be cleaned at least every few months, and that's that's the max end of it. Maybe you know some places have to clean it, you know, monthly, um, or you know the grease interceptor outside, which is a much larger device. Uh, you know that needs to be cleaned at least quarterly, if not more frequently. Those are the ones you usually see at bigger restaurants and. Food or uh, fast food places, <clears throat> but um, awareness actually is a huge, huge portion of it. Uh, and so you know, you see your fog program mature, and that's a lot. Of, a lot of times, people too get discouraged because they don't realize that um, when you start up a new program of this level, uh, the first year you're kind of just warming up, and the second year you're really picking up your stride. And by the third year you've got people sort of habitualized. They understand they're starting to respond more. Um, you know, and everybody, of course, always expects, you know, they, you know, they want to show results right away. And so I think that's one of the biggest things I would say as a, a bit of advice to anybody starting up a FOB program is um, it's okay if, if you're not seeing immediate response because you've got a, a, a giant customer base that is not familiar with the topic, and so you need to just continue to work with them and they understand that over time. I really like that approach. You've kind of outlined this uh, both internal and external communication internally with 
with all the other departments you're going to be interfacing with or, or overlapping with. And, you know, fa the face-to-face visit seemed to me to be a really smart thing to do just because, you know, you the 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 customer actually un, can understand better and know that hey this the the utility is actually taking the time to come visit me and this must be really important if they're taking that kind of effort so I really think that's um, that's a really smart thing to do uh, so when when you're actually developing the program what are the types of regulations that you you put in place I mean what what does a let's say a fog ordinance or a fog regulation look like. See, now that's interesting because um, it, it depends. And see, I, 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 this is the way I've always looked at something is, is it's all about your approach. And so if your approach needs to be that you need a, you feel like you need a fog code or fog regulation, um, you go that you can go that route. Uh, I remember when I first got here, I discussed with, it, with our city attorney. I met with our city attorney. I was one of the other people. You know, I, I was talking to everybody. So I, <laughs> I approached our city attorney and I said, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Um, you know, I'm confident in what I'm doing. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not exceeding my authority. You know, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I want to help conserve what we've got. Um, and I just kind of explained what I wanted to do. And we sort of worked on a fog code for a little while. Um, and then I realized it's not really necessary, uh, it, at least for the city of Gresham. And it is, it is like, it's a case by case thing. You figure out if, if the city council you're working with feels that we need a, a, a place to point to and say here's where we're basing our reason for you know what we're telling our businesses um, and they want to be that specific then you can develop a fog code um, and a fog code would just be something you know, sort of simple like you'd be saying um, you know everybody has to install a device uh, everybody that has a device has to maintain it per the manufacturer's suggested retail frequencies or by these sort of requirements you know like a, you know 30 percent of the capacity of the device so you, you get you get you so what you're doing in your fog code is you, if you want, you can create specifics. If you like to be able to point to a code section and say specifically, this is what you need to do. Now in the city of Gresham, the way I've done it is uh, any, any city that has like a pre-treatment program, um, they're gonna have basic sort of uh, what they call discharge prohibitions. So what it says is it's, a, it's essentially a laundry list of things you can't put to the sewer. Um, and the one that everybody hangs their hat on when it comes to fog is you can't discharge any any um, uh, solid or viscous substance that can cause or contribute to a blockage in the sewer line. And so I feel I, you know, and that's kind of where um, I have hung my hat on the code because that's that's a pretty that's a pretty basic way of telling people, you know, essentially you're not allowed to put anything to the sewer that can create a blockage or contribute to one. Um, and fog does that. And then uh, you have a device and it's installed and they're designed to operate at a certain percentage removal rate up to a point. And then once their capacity hits that point, then you lose, you start wasting out, out the line. So, you know, your, your material is going out. And so that becomes a discharge prohibition violation. Um, and I don't issue violations on that. I just tell people clean it, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't go and say, hey, you know, the very second, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy, you know, that's, that's not the way I go. I like, to, I like people to, to work with me. Um, but um, so it, it, it depends on your approach. Like in the city of, oh, not the city, but the, the state of Oregon, <clears throat> there's also a plumbing code. Uh, you know, there's a universal plumbing code for every, you know, all the United States. But <clears throat> in the state of Oregon, we have uh, our UPC, Chapter 10, actually talks about installing these devices. 
And these devices are get get a what's called like a plumbing code, you know, like an ANSI or Atmos stamp on them that says it's a plumbing code approved device. And those devices have to perform to a certain standard before they get that stamp. And so that's that's where you can also kind of use your um, reason for saying the device needs to be cleaned more frequently or less frequently. Um, I do that too. A lot of municipalities, they just increase the frequency all the time. And I've told all my customers that if we look at your pump out reports and and it shows that you not have you don't have very much, we can reduce your frequency. So I like to, and I tell them it's a sliding scale, you're not stuck. And that gives them the feeling of sense of power as well, but getting off topic. Um, so when it comes to regulations, <laughs> You can, you can, it depends on your research, and that's what I did too. That was a huge com component. Sorry about the fog program, I forgot. It's a reach back. Um, is look at your local ordinance, uh, look at it, see if there's any holes, see what you got, if what you got is strong. Um, look at your state ordinance, like like your plumbing code. You could you could actually use your plumbing code as a basis for some, a lot of the requirements you make, because that's already state code. You know, uh, there's no reason to um, kind of be redundant in a way. Um, and so it, it's, and like I said, I, I, have, uh, I have this habit of always changing my approach or adjusting my approach to utilize what's in place at, and, you know, when I get there, as opposed to trying to create something new. And in Gresham, it worked out because we had our discharge prohibitions. There's the chapter 10 of the plumbing code. Um, and, in, and okay, and a lot of the times in your pre-treatment code, um, well, pretty much every time, is there's a, there's a submit records sort of section so everybody has a pretreatment code. Code everybody that has pretreatment is, is uh, if we request records from them, they're required to sum, submit them. And so that's where you can do that too. You want to make sure the device is being maintained. So you let everybody know they need to submit service records. And so you can use that section of your code as well. So um, uh, that probably doesn't answer the question very well. <laughs> oh no, no, that's so. So I'm just trying to visualize this. There's a there. It's. There are multiple layers of regulation here. You mentioned state codes. Uh, there's, you know, there's uh, EPA kind of pushes down on the states. The states then implement uh, various programs, and then the local, uh, the local level can have their regulation. Now, if your state code says that all, let's say, food service establishments are going to have a grease trap, mm -hmm. you know, that's then when when the municipality wants to implement a fog program. It's not as if you're going to come in and say, hey, we're going to require you to spend all this money to comply because the, in, in all likelihood, the grease trap's already there, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, yeah. And that, that kind of happens sometimes in some cities. So um, what uh, a lot of the times, and I've noticed that this, this can happen, is that um, in sort of like a, a building department, what they do is they get the people come in and pull permits to do work. Um, and they, you know, and you see that where they just, they just, they pull a permit to do work, they get the work done, they schedule an inspector to come out, and the inspector comes out, or the plumbing inspector, or building inspector comes out, and they inspect to make sure what was installed or what was done is to code. Um, and that's, and that's that. And so, like, sort of in the case of fog, uh, fog control or, um, you know, ha having these devices installed. There's not that oversight, and that's where where I say I kind of like I I do plan review, but I'm not a planning planner that has a stamp. Um, so what I do is I see these facilities and make sure they're actually including on their plans these devices, so that they're actually getting installed. Um, and, it, and and I'm not faulting the building department at all. I mean that's one of those things where 
they're doing their job. You know, they, they show up, they see it, okay, you've installed it, it's installed per these specifications, you're good to go. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single food service establishment, you know, got that installed. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, truly, I mean, like the regulation is there at the state level. Um, and then uh, if you look in the plumbing code too, a lot of times the plumbing code says, you know, the, the building official or the authority having jurisdiction. Um, and so it gives us that sort of leeway too to, to make that, to make a call on certain things, which is cool. Um, but uh, yeah, so that when it comes to fog, it actually is becoming more of a, a requirement of, to be controlled. EPA has actually released some sort of, they just call them like, you know, memos or guidance. So it's not requirements, but they've kind of touched upon the importance of having a fog program and controlling that. In our last, in our in this Gresham's last state audit, uh, they mentioned they actually mentioned that they recognized that we had a fog program and that was a good thing and, and you know protecting the, the public's health and safety and our, our infrastructure. Okay, and within the fog program, let's say you're relying on um, the pretreatment regulations or the state the state plumbing regulations, when you start putting requirements on in the FOG program, what form do those take if it's not codified? I mean, how, how, do, your, how do your customers know what they have to comply with? Um, so I am their technical assistance person. So I, I let them, uh, um, even though I'm not a plumber, I'm very knowledgeable of the plumbing code. I have a copy of the Chapter 10 on my desk. Uh, that I can um, show anybody and, and, and walk them through it. Uh, when it comes to the discharge prohibitions, um, I can explain to them exactly what uh, what is needed. Um, you know, you can, you, if you have sort of like a, you know, you, I always make sure I can point to a point, a spot where it says it, like a discharge prohibitions, chapter 10 code. And then even if they have questions about the devices themselves and why they need to be serviced at a certain frequently frequency, I found the section of the plumbing code where it talks about um, getting its ANSI or Atmos stamp stating that it is a plumbing code approved device. And I, I tell them, uh, I let, I'm able to let them know um, how these devices are designed and rated. And, you know, what, what the man, sort of essentially the manufacturer has designed and rated it for and engineered it for. Um, so, and then and that's. I kind of make sure my knowledge base is as broad as possible so that I can actually show these different points. Now, and that's, and that's where I say a lot of people who, um, they want a little more confidence, uh, they, they, don't, they don't feel confident being able to do that. That's when a lot of municipalities will create like a specific fog code. They'll, they'll have that, and that way they can point to just one spot. Sure. Um, I like, I, and that's sort of the approach I took is I like to use what's already in place. Okay. Um, you know, that, that everybody's already had to, you know, sort of comply with. Okay. And so let's look at it. Let's flip it a little bit uh, away from the, the regulatory enforcement side. And let's look at, at the user side. If I'm a, if I'm a food service establishment, how, how do I go about developing the fog compliance plan and, you know, what all's involved in that? Um, it's actually pretty simple on the business side. Uh, a lot of the times, um, I've actually worked with a number of businesses that have had to, you know, they didn't like having to clean their trap out too much. And they're just what are called, you know, their acronym, standard BMPs or best management practices. And it's kind of like housekeeping or how you clean up. Instead of, if, if, if you're a restaurant and you want to reduce your cleaning cycle, figure out in your kitchen where you're rinsing things down the drain more and where you can actually avoid that by dry wiping off into a trash can. <clears throat> um, 
some places I found a cost avoidance or, or a cost cost reduction by just wiping off like a major, you know, sort of the greasy portion of it, uh, of, of some sort of clean process with a paper towel and getting to the trash. Or if they have a rag service or a laundry service, they use that and, you know, and, and keep that from going down the drain. Um, it's mostly, it, when it comes to a kitchen, it, however much material you can keep out of going down the drain, it's actually pretty, it's pretty simple for the customer side. So for the customer side, that's, that's the one cool thing is that everybody is always concerned about how hard is this going to be for me to do? I go, well, you know, the hardest part is actually, you know, when you're doing construction and you install all this, now that you have it, um, it's just your kind of like your day-to-day -day cleanup practices. And it could be as simple as that, making sure your employees are trained and uh, making sure they're aware of, of you know, the, the issues at hand for, for the business itself. Okay, so by intercepting all this grease and, you know, getting it pumped out of these grease traps, what where does the where's the grease disposed of? I mean, is it just going to the landfill, or, or are there any yeah. benef are there any beneficial uses you can put for all this grease? Yeah, and that's and that's sort of the interesting thing is uh, uh, recently um, a lot of facilities have been making some changes. So originally they would, they would too they would take it, decant the water off, um, take the take the sol remaining solid material and just send it to the landfill. And of course that would contribute to you know uh, just sort of the 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 gas, the gas, the off gassing at the landfill. Some places used it for boiler fuel um, if they had a hard, large enough volume of it. But um, recently, there it's become more and more of a commodity. It actually has an energy content. Um, well, the city of Gresham actually uh, built uh, one of the first, I think it was the first, uh, I'm trying to remember if it is the first or the second in the city, in the state of Oregon, a grease receiving station. So all this, all this grease material that's pumped out goes to this uh, goes to the uh, city aggression wastewater plant they pump it into a holding tank and they keep it heated and sort of circulated and they slowly bleed it into our digesters and it increases uh, gas production in the digesters uh, so much so that we went from having one cogen generator that was generating around 50 percent of the plant's power um, just off of the, the standard residential and industrial to a second cogen and now we are actually a net zero um, plant with utilizing, uh, we have a solar array as well, but utilizing this this new new grease capacity, a second generator in their solar array. So um, it actually has a decent enough energy content, you know. And, and most wastewater plants have digesters with gas generation. If you ever drive, you're past a, a a wastewater plant early in the morning or late at night, you can sometimes see like a ten foot flame. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen the flares. Yeah, yeah, they're they're burning off the gas because they can't. You can't just let it vent off methane into the air. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you have a cogen, you can actually burn it and generate fuel, fuel and heat with that, or uh, energy and heat with that. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, I've I uh, was talking to a utility director one time. I was out at their plant and and I noticed the flare, and he kind of saw me looking at it and he says, "Oh, you know, uh, people drive by all the time and say, hey, and call up and say, hey, you know, you're just venting that gas. You could, you could capture it.'" And they say, hey, "Well, we we do. We actually do capture the gas. That's just the stuff that we can't even use." So, uh, yeah, yeah. it's it's amazing how uh, productive all this can be. So, you know, Paul, you've been absolutely fantastic um, telling us a little bit about fog programs, how to set them up, what the salient issues are. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and the city of Gresham's fog program, where can they go to do that? Um, well, they can contact me directly. I'd be happy to answer any questions. I have, I have cities hit me up all the time. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, 
cities out of state actually give me a call because they, you know, they've, they've gotten referred to me. Um, uh, it's paul.kramer at greshamoregon.gov. So it'd be P-A-U-L dot Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R at Gresham, G-R-E-S-H-A-M, Oregon, O-R-E-G-O-N dot G-O-V. Terrific. Or can call as well. I mean, if you go to the Gresh, city of Gresham website, yep. uh, you can find me. That's, that's how a lot of people found me as well. Terrific. And we'll have all that stuff in the show notes. So, Paul, again, thank you so much. You were absolutely fantastic today. Really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, you bet. Bye, Paul. See ya. I hope you liked that interview with Paul Kramer of Gresham, Oregon. He was just a fantastic guy to interview, very knowledgeable, uh, really a, a hands-on guy as well. Um, well, here are a couple takeaways. First, as Paul indicated, it's always easier to control a contaminant, pollutant, or material before it enters the sewer system. And there may be food service establishments that don't understand the importance of fog removal and are not cleaning out the grease trap or the grease removal devices. Uh, and then those devices then bleed fog into the sewer system. So getting businesses in your community to understand the importance of removing fog before it gets into the sewer system is really important. It can help avoid blockages, which means fewer sewer backups, fewer CSOs or SSOs, lower sewer bills because the pipes and infrastructure are in better shape and don't need to be maintained as much, and more benefits. Paul also indicated the implementation of a fog program eliminated CSOs in one community that he's aware of. You can have a fog program in your home, too. Instead of pouring the grease from that ground beef, you brown down the drain, strain it off into a glass jar and put it in the freezer until you're ready, until the, the jar is full and you're ready to dispose of it. My family's been doing that for years, and we've filled countless jars full of fog. Uh, you can also wipe greasy plates down with a paper towel or a paper napkin. You can even use one that, that you use during your meal so you're not wasting a clean one uh, you know, before you rinse that plate. Uh, or put it in the dishwasher, wipe it down with that paper towel. Finally, I'd like to point out what Paul did when he was tasked with developing the program in Gresham, and that is he communicated first. He said he took a f the first few months at the outset and communicated internally with other departments within the city. He named a bunch of them. He, he uh, communicated with planning department, plumbing, wastewater engineering, code enforcement, legal, and economic development uh, were the ones that I, I recalled hearing. He also communicated communicated externally with face-to-face -face visits with what he called his customers and explained why fog removal is so important. The result is that he's been able to develop a very successful program up there in Gresham. And as with many of our guests, it comes back to communication, communication, communication. That can't be overlooked in the water and utility business. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 62. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And please do me a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and any other podcast directory that you listen to the podcast on. That's a great way for people to find out about the podcast. Also, please sign up for the Water Values newsletter and take the listener survey, which I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, and those can be done at thewatervalues.com as well. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.